Presented here is a discussion and a point of view regarding campus cultures and a conservative case for liberal education. The position I take is tentative. I have many unanswered questions, but this discussion, I think, has utility and perhaps some insight. I hope it will serve you in your thinking of this topic. I'm Thomas Thompson, resisting the decay of discourse. Reasonable. The Cambridge Dictionary defines it as such an adjective used to describe something that is, quote, based on or using good judgment and is therefore fair and practical. There are a few alternative definitions. One is that something is simply acceptable, although it can also mean not expensive, as in you got something at a reasonable price. Reading my guest Dr. Jonathan Marx's book and considering its title, Let's Be Reasonable, I am reminded of a remark made by I.A. Richards. He said, quote, We want to do something, and a definition is a means of doing it. If we want certain results, then we must use certain definitions, but no definition has any authority apart from a purpose, or any authority to bar us from other purposes. As you will hear in the conversation to follow, the book's title has a tinge of irony, as when you are locked in a heated debate and out of frustration, someone throws their hands in the air to proclaim, let's be reasonable. I cannot be entirely sure that they want to proceed talking in a way that is based on or uses good judgment and therefore is fair and practical. In other words, the word reasonable is like all other terms in that it is defined by its purpose. And if let's be reasonable is used as a means of convincing you to join a certain club or group or pledge allegiance to an ideology, we can be sure that reason as we know it is not what's considered. Reasonable in these instances means think from my perspective even if it's flawed. This brings me back to Neil Postman who wrote, quote, A definition is not a manifestation of nature, but merely and always an instrument for helping us to achieve our purposes. Therefore, we must, when we invoke the idea of reason, stand by it as an authority, as our purpose. What you are about to hear is a conservative case for liberal education, one that hopes to reorient the purpose of our institutions of learning toward a preservation of reason as an authority, not only as a tool whose purpose is to score political or ideological points. This is my conversation with Dr. Jonathan Marks. In three, two, one, we're live. Today I'm sitting down with Dr. Jonathan Marks, whose new book, Let's Be Reasonable, A Conservative Case for Liberal Education, hit shelves on February 9th. Uh, thank you for taking the time to sit down with me. I'm excited to be here. I'm a middle-aged married guy. This is as dirty as I get. <laughs> Admittedly, it's the same for me. So um, books, you know, they're not written in a vacuum, and I think that's pretty obvious. And with that in mind, there seems to be a few inciting incidents, if you will, that helped form or at least clarify the convictions that animate the book. I'm not sure if any of these are chief among the others, but you seem to lament that many conservative voices are no longer phrasing the debate about 
colleges as a debate, but as some sort of lost cause. What do you think those conservatives who wash their hands with colleges, so to speak, are missing? Well, I don't think that conservatives are much better than anybody else at noticing evidence that contradicts their views. And I'll give you an example. Do you know who Sam Abrams is? Um, I don't believe I do. Could you fill me in? Absolutely. He's a professor of uh, politics, political science, over at Sarah Lawrence College. And he's a conservative. And a couple of years ago, he wrote an op-ed that appeared in the uh, New York Times. And in the op-ed, he criticized the political lopsidedness of college administrators and the political lopsidedness of the kinds of events they put on. And he used his own college as an example. And subsequently, students vandalized his office and suggested that the college ought to look into at least the possibility of getting rid of him. The administration, while it didn't give in to these demands, issued a tepid response. And according to Sam Abrams, anyway, um, led on, the president led on, that perhaps he'd be happier um, someplace else. Um, but, but he stayed there, and um, conservatives rightly talked a lot about this because it's genuinely disturbing. Yeah. But the other thing about Sam Abrams is he's also an astute analyst of higher education. He writes a lot about it. And among the things he's found are, uh, one, that conservative professors are as or more satisfied with their jobs in academia um, than their liberal counterparts are. Uh, he's also found that students on the whole aren't radical, um, aren't even overwhelmingly liberal. A, plural, a plurality described themselves as uh, middle of the road. Neither of these two ideas really comports with the idea um, that conservatives are oppressed on campus. But people tend to put Sam Abrams on a poster and say, you know, here's the victim. They see mm -hmm. and hear that. But they tend not to hear the rest of what Sam Abrams says. And I, I'd say that's typical, right? Yeah. If you present that kind of evidence to many people, the conservative audience will tend to be dismissive and say, well, if professors say that, they've got Stockholm syndrome, they've just gotten comfortable with the boot on their necks. Mm -hmm. And that kind of argument is really the last resort of the evidence deprived, right? There's yeah. a way in which conservatives have just become attached to the idea that colleges and universities are 24-7 indoctrination factories. Now, Sam Abrams doesn't minimize problems on campus. What he does say, to use your language, is that they're not lost causes. Yeah. And that's the argument, uh, at least part of the argument I'm trying to make as well. Well, then what do you see as the value of specifically a conservative case for liberal education? Why, why is that the specific, I guess, bent? Thank you. Well, what, one reason is, is conservative specific, right? That is to say that I'm concerned about the way conservatives talk about higher education. Right now, probably the dominant student organization that builds itself as conservative, or at least the one that gets the most press, is an organization called Turning Point USA. Have, have you heard of them? Yeah, I have heard of them. So TPUSA um, is run by Charlie Kirk, who, who never went to college. Mm -hmm. And as far as I can tell, it doesn't have um, a positive vision for what colleges and universities should be. Right? They spend most of their time running down colleges and universities, enunciating the view that socialism sucks 
mm-hmm. um, but not really presenting um, a positive vision for what conservatives should seek at universities. So one thing I'm trying to do is present a, not the right. I don't represent yeah. all of conservatism, but a um, kind of goal to strive for. Um, so that that's one aspect of it, and that has to do with conservatism. And then there's a part of it that has to do with with universities too, right? Uh, what am I trying to conserve um, mm-hmm. at universities as a conservative? One thing I'm trying to conserve is this this idea uh, that there's a nobility um, to trying to think for yourself, to trying to um, seek out the arguments and the evidence and try to think and act accordingly, right? That, that's that's an old idea, right? It's an mm-hmm. idea I bring all the way back at least um, to the 17th century, and it goes back further than that, and we sometimes call that an enlightenment idea. And then there's a second idea that I want to conserve too, which is that this pursuit is, is difficult and dicey, and it's easy um, to screw it up, right? To think that um, you've achieved enlightenment, that we live in the most enlightened age ever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not alone among conservatives in thinking that that's not quite right, that the here and now isn't all there is, right? That's one reason conservatives yeah. tend to appeal to old books, not because they're a compendium of interesting errors, but that they might contain some kind of wisdom. Yeah, These are old-fashioned ideas, and I think that... Um, they're helpful um, in the university still. Yeah, I mean, old-fashioned doesn't necessarily mean they don't hold water at all, but you write in the book, quote, campus cultures aren't all one thing, but if we do our work, there will be more of that culture in which it's shameful to commit oneself without weighing the arguments and the evidence, and less of that culture according to which it's shameful to hesitate to commit oneself. Is that a trend that worries you? I mean, do you see on colleges at all a culture in which it's shameful to hesitate to commit oneself to certain, I don't know, political or ideological positions? Well, I I think so. Um, Maybe it doesn't cut across every campus, but Mm -hmm. just in my neck of the woods, I live in Pennsylvania. Um, There were student strikes at both Haverford College, uh, which is not too far from me, and Bryn Mawr College, they're located in the same neighborhood. Um, and, and many students, you know, who, who maybe uh, wanted to continue their studies and uh, go to classes reported feeling under intense pressure um, to forgo that um, and to side with the activists who are leading um, the strike. Um, so I think there is real pressure um, in that sense to declare yourself, to commit oneself, to show um, that you're on the right side of things, on the right side uh, of history. I mean, do you view that as a possible learning experience for these students on campus facing the the crowd? They have to either take a stand or acquiesce. I mean, is, do you think these are useful experiences or do you think there's no place for this kind of, I don't know, behavior on a campus? Well, I think it can be a useful learning experience, mm-hmm. right? And And, and one helpful thing about what we're talking about is sometimes we use the language of coercion, but it's not full-blown coercion in the sense that um, you can be courageous, right? And and some students uh, wrote things that um, uh, maybe would have put them in bad odor um, with their fellow students. But I I think that sometimes 
um, college leaders don't do as much as they could to treat these situations as learning experiences. Yeah. Um, say, look at activists and see they have a kind of fixed set of demands, and they try to figure out how best to respond to those demands, and sometimes they make noises about dialogue, um, but there's not much scrutiny um, of those opinions, not much encouragement of it. At both Haverford and Bryn Mawr, um, the administration all but just took the side of the activists in the end, declared them to be heroes, right, um, in yeah. spite of the ill treatment which they subjected um, fellow students um, and tried to move on. Um, so I think sometimes on our campuses, yes, these can be learning experiences, but there really is a responsibility on the part of faculty and administrators to, to make some attempt to promote an atmosphere in which things can be learned. So how um, they react and frame it, essentially. Yeah. Well, well that, I guess that, that, to an extent, brings me to the title of the book, Let's Be Reasonable. I mean, upon picking it up, it takes on a slightly ironic connotation. Because essentially when someone locked in a debate, exasperated, throws their hands up and says, let's be reasonable, reason as we will get to define it, is often the last thing on their mind. Is that a fair assessment? Well, <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. In some ways, you know, when I was thinking about the title of the book, I, I was thinking of, you know, being on Facebook or Twitter or social media, mm -hmm. um, which I confess I often am. And yeah, you see people on there, you know, even people you know, friends of yours, people you think are intelligent, uh, operating almost as um, press agents for an embattled politician. Mm. You know, that is to say there is almost a comical determination um, to stick to the argument and to ignore um, all countervailing evidence. And that's when you kind of want to grab somebody and scruff the neck and say, for God's sake, be reasonable. Yeah. And what do you mean by that? And sometimes you're sincere, right? What you mean by that is, you know, stop trying to advance the fortunes of your team. Stop trying to puff yourself up. Mm -hmm. And let's examine together the evidence and the arguments. Together, right? Let's be reasonable. Let's yeah. examine together the arguments and the evidence and see what conclusions we're able to draw and, and maybe seek out other evidence and arguments to see if we can get further. Right? So let's be reasonable can be a genuine invitation to join a community right? that's guided mm -hmm. by uh, reason and is seeking out um, the best approximation to the truth that you know, we're, we're capable of getting. But of course, just as you say, sometimes we're just frustrated, right? The whole argument assumes that we're reasonable. Yeah. And the person that we're talking to isn't. And sometimes maybe we just mean something more like, think more like me or, you know, shut up. And I think that critics who say that sometimes be reasonable is a mask for something else yeah, they're not wrong about that. So sometimes you really are looking to sort of bully somebody else to exercise some kind of power over them. But that's not a reason for abandoning the whole enterprise on which, you know, probably our sanity and well-being depend yeah. um, in a lot of ways. I think then the distinction between what is meant by the phrase, let's be reasonable, and actually employing reason as an authority is really paramount to understanding your argument. Is considering reason to be something more than a tool that you can use to score points at the heart of what is truly liberal about liberal education? Well, I, I think so. Uh, liberal education, I'm alone in thinking, is somehow or another an education for freedom. 
Mm-hmm. And that would seem to imply thinking for yourself, not just grabbing your opinions from the state or from the prejudices that you find around you. And if you're going to do that, you need some kind of authority to appeal to mm-hmm. above states and above prejudices. And uh, John Locke, the political philosopher I deal with a lot um, in my book, says that um, each person carries about him a touchstone for distinguishing between truth and appearance. And that's what he calls natural reason. And his suggestion and my suggestion is that in order to be free, you need to make use of that. Make use of your natural reason, that is. So again, I'm I'm going to jump back to Locke. you, You do cite him a bit in the text, and there was one specific quotation that stuck out to me, which was that there cannot be anything so disingenuous, so misbecoming a gentleman or anyone who pretends to be rational as not to yield to plain reason and the conviction of clear arguments. I mean, does that serve to, to some extent, explain what you mean by yielding to reason as an authority, or is there, is there something else to it? Well, I open my book with that quotation, and, and in some ways, the quotation inspired a lot of what I did in the book. Now, Locke in that particular quotation puts the case really starkly, right? Uh, Plain reason, the conviction of clear arguments. Sometimes it's the case, it's not always the case, but sometimes it's the case where the arguments are so powerful on one side, so weak on the other, that the only way to avoid drawing the conclusion and going with the stronger arguments is uh, to change the subject or, or to run away, right, or, or something like that. And I, I think that Locke there, you know, really sets down a marker, right, and, and, and says that under those conditions, right, it's dishonorable um, not to yield. And you can, of course, extend that to, to less clear situations where the honor is at least pursuing things as far as you can, um, even when you really are in a kind of you know, fog of uncertainty in some ways, trying to uh, make your way through it. Um, so, yes, uh, what I mean by yielding to reason is, is avoiding those evasions I just described. Avoiding evasions is a, not a great way of putting it, but... Um, uh, forgoing those evasions, right? Staying in the arguments, not not mm-hmm. creating a distraction, right? So you can get away yeah. um, from the person who's arguing with you. It's not cutting off the conversation simply because it's not going your way, right? It's staying in and listening. And, you know, I think that at that point, it would be a very pure example of learning, right? You have your idea, you're confronted with another that overwhelmingly the evidence shows that perhaps you should you know, alter your perspective to this event or idea or whatever it may be. And that's where it gets interesting and a bit complicated. Regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum or where they fall on the political spectrum, people who are thinking and writing about colleges and universities seem to broadly agree that colleges and universities claim they are in the free search of truth, inquiry, and reason, but are actually serving different purposes. Assuming that there is this broad agreement, and if you go to the literature and listen to the talks, I think it becomes rather clear that it is, where is this disagreement? Is it just on what these other purposes are? or? So there's something I think funny about, about this, right? In that um, 
you know, if you're on the left end of the political spectrum, especially the far left, you look at universities and say, man, these people say the reason what they're really looking to do is to enslave us to the capitalist heteronormative Zionist order, right? That use whatever terms you want to use. Um, and of course, conservatives look at it and say, what's really going on here is they say they're talking about reason, but they're really trying to enslave us to this, this, this globalist progressive enterprise. Um, so this is one case in which bipartisanship is, is not dead. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I give a couple of answers, though, to your question. One is, one is yes, which may make it odd that there's going to be more than one answer here. But one answer is just yes, right? That, that is sort of where the disagreement is, right? Yeah. So uh, there are some commentators who look at the university and that they see some kind of moral or political purpose to it, right? So, but they'll disagree about what that purpose is, right? Some might say what we're really looking to do um, is to create uh, global citizens, cosmopolitans, um, and, and that's kind of what I would describe as kind of a center-left idea about what universities ought to be doing. Um, and then there are people who are more radical who suggest, no, what we really need to do is, is within the university, we have to create the beginnings of, you know, a real revolution um, and change things much more radically, mm-hmm. right, than the center-left would suggest. Um, so those folks, and then there are others who say, you eggheads have no right to say what, you know, how people should be yeah. morally or politically. What the university is about is jobs, 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 right? And that's vocationalism. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of disagreement, I think, along those lines. But the reason I want to give a second answer is I, I would push back a little bit um, when you say that everybody sort of agrees that the universities are sort of shamming and they're not serious um, about the pursuit of the truth. I mean, I think if you ask a lot of people, both within and outside the universities, uh, they will say, yeah, that's kind of what I think the university is is about. Um, And in some ways it is, but it's competing against a lot of other um, kinds of things um, Mm -hmm. that tend to undermine it, including the various conceptions of the university I just, just described. Um, to you. Um, So I think if you were to say to, you know, your typical college professor, one of my colleagues, I think that the university is about the pursuit of the truth. They wouldn't faint after saying, oh, my God, how can that be true? Um, They'd probably on some level agree with that, but just just be distracted by other considerations. Well, I I think perhaps I've been approaching this question because I'm just inundated with all this different media. I hear a lot about the events at Evergreen State College in Washington is cited as a type case, or you open the book with a discussion of the Harvard holiday placemat for social justice, and we can go more in depth on that if you'd like. But all told, do you believe that the media focus of the radicalization of college campuses misses the mark as to what happens daily across most campuses? Yes. Um, Let me say a couple of things about that, because I want to be careful. Um, I've written about some of those events myself. Mm -hmm. Um, Lots and lots of pieces about that kind of event. So I don't want to dismiss them or or not take them seriously, although Evergreen is is also a quintessential left-wing college. It is Mm -hmm. one of the most left-wing colleges in the entire country. So it limits the extent to which you can take it as a type case. But there are things like that going on, mm-hmm. right, to a lesser degree 
um, at all kinds of campuses. And I, I don't want to pretend that they don't go on. Um, but I do think that we can easily be misled um, by media accounts. And let me describe two kinds. Right? One is conservative media accounts. Right? And I sit in that sphere and I, I write mm -hmm. um, for that sphere. And um, I follow, for example, Campus Reform right, um, on Twitter and showing all my social media credentials today. <laughs> And, you know, they put five stories in your feed every single day about how awful things are on campus. And mm -hmm. what that means is that, you know, if a lone undergraduate at a campus of thousands writes an op-ed, you know, about manspreading, right, mm -hmm. they pick up the red phone, right? They're on that. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're reading five stories a day like that, some of which will be picked up. Um, by Fox News, others of which will be, you know, picked up by um, sources that have more followers than campus reform, but are, aren't quite um, Fox News, uh, uh, Ben Shapiro's yeah. um, uh, uh, Facebook page, for example, and the um, magazine he edits, the name of which is slipping my mind at the moment. Um, but so, th so there is... Um, this conservative media sphere where if it's mostly what you listen to, right, I, I think you do have a sense that things are much worse than they are. That, that really is just 24-7 insanity. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then there's also the, um, you know, the more standard media, you know, whether you want to call it liberal media or mainstream media, the MSM, right, mm -hmm. the lamestream media, whatever you want to call it, right, the Washington Post, New York Times, and they also are a little bit obsessed with campus shenanigans. I mean, yeah. they cover them a little bit differently, but, you know, I think their readers are sort of fascinated, right? You know, we're all getting a little bit old you know, reading these things, kind of fascinating what the young people are doing in campus, and we, we kind of like to worry about it. And so, you know, I'm not saying that this actually happened because it didn't, but, you know, there are occasionally protests on my campus. They're very rare, but they occasionally happen, and... Mm -hmm. You know, it's possible that if somebody phoned up the Philadelphia Inquirer, they might come out and cover it because it's interesting when people are protesting. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, you know, if, if I teach a platonic dialogue, um, as, by the way, um, at least one platonic dialogue has been taught in the seminar I mentioned to you every single year, the whole time I've been at a size 15 years, mm -hmm. nobody cares about that. <laughs> That's that's not going to get covered. There's no headlines. Yeah. Marx teaches great class on Plato's Euthyphro. That's that's not going to make the news. But I think it's most of what's going on. I quote um, a former Harvard president, right, and, and economist, um, Larry Summers, um, who in some ways, you know, he got to see what used to be called political correctness up close and personal. He was he was deeply criticized for various things he did on on grounds that um, it seemed to some people to be sexist or it seemed to some people to um, be racist. So he knew the drill, but he still said um, in an interview that, you know, what's mostly going on on campus is what's always gone on. You know, professors teach classes, students take them, students make friends, they aspire um, to graduate, maybe they have a transformative experience. And he says, if that's not what you think is mostly going on on college campuses, you're probably making a mistake. And I think that's true, right? Even the ones that have this, these bursts of, of craziness, mm -hmm. I think most of the time, 
that's most of what's going on, probably. Well, it, it's it's funny that you say that because I mean, when I was in undergrad, you know, I have friends who would send me, you know, a Dave Rubin or a Ben Shapiro post about some campus insanity or something along those lines. And I distinctly remember during undergrad being on campus waiting for, as as you write about in the books, these shark attacks, right? Some ideological or political confrontation on campus or a protest. And because that's what I was reading about. That's what I was hearing about on some podcasts and I was to expect flare-ups. I mean, that's what my diet of information and media hyped up in my head. And I waited just to find that the daily minutia of campus life is rather boring. Nothing much happens. I mean, sure, as you talked about, there may have been a gathering every once in a while on the quad, but if I was to report on those minor events as some sign of the campus culture, I think that would be rather disingenuous. The real action, if action is even the term, is kind of what you talked about in the seminar, teaching a platonic dialogue or on a discussion panel. And But there was never any kind of shout down on a discussion panel. It was a passive-aggressive look or an off-the-cuff statement. So I guess what I was hoping to get at in my previous question was not to wonder if things like shutdowns or mandatory discussions of privilege happen on campuses. I'm sure they do. The more serious point I want to get at is in your estimation, does the, you know, if it bleeds, it leads coverage of colleges distort the average person's conception of what's actually happening? I mean, do you think people are generally smart enough to say, you know what, this is obviously they're not burning down the campus every single day? Or do you suggest that perhaps people diversify their media diet to get a fuller picture of what's happening? Yeah, well, I think it would be hard because, as I said, there are many different forms of media and they're, they're focused, right? Again, it's not mm-hmm. just conservative media that is sort of focused on shark attacky coverage. Yeah, very true. Um, you know, it's media coverage in general. And even people who cover it very responsibly, right? That's to say they're covering the shark attacks very carefully and very well. And there are lots of journalists um, who do that kind of thing. Or, or nonetheless, that's what they're focusing on because nobody wants to read um, about the other stuff. By the way, I love this picture of you wandering around campus, you know, bandana at the ready, wondering where's, <laughs> where's, where's the it party? It wasn't you know? that. It was What's kind of a casual observer from a distance wondering. <laughs> uh, I'm... Yeah, but but I do think, you know, I, I mean, on the one hand, you know, there's a sense which, I mean, yes, of course. I, I mean, a lot of these people have been to college, mm-hmm. right? Or they know someone who's at college. And so in that kind of local sense, they understand that, all right, you know, Maybe it's not going on at my alma mater, or at least I hope that it isn't, because sometimes it is, right? But the, um, but um, I mean, it's funny. I I think that we can, you know, kind of like we we often think our own representative in Congress is okay, um, but think the whole rest of Congress is awful. I think even if we sort of have personal experience, um, that 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 the campus we know best is fine. Um, we either think, well, everything has probably changed since I was last there, or we think, well, it's fine in that little neck of the woods, but everything is a terrible mess elsewhere. And so I think people's views can be distorted. And I think that one of the problems with that is, is that people get the idea, you know, and I'll hear this sometimes from people who comment on things I write, you know, thank you for telling me this. Now I know that I should never go say, to Columbia University. Mm. And Columbia University is a great place to go, you know? I mean, <laughs> there are a lot of things going on at Columbia University other than, you know, something I might have reported on in, you know, a 700-word 
blog post, and it's safe to send your children to college, you know, generally speaking. And and you know, it, it troubles me that um, that I feel a, a lot of folks think that well, you know, if, if I send my child to college and my child is you know even not conservative but sort of semi-sane, she'll be subjected to um, oppression of various kinds and. Again, just like you say, I'm not saying that could never happen, right? (laughs) You shouldn't do um, your research. And I think there are things that go on on colleges on a more daily basis. There aren't sort of the protests um, that are politically charged, right? The kinds of things that Sam Abrams talked about in that New York Times editorial I mentioned, you know, microaggression or get woke kinds of trainings that people um, go to. But um, again, there are different neighborhoods. Um, in universities, different things to do. I mean, especially the bigger the university is, the more true that is. Um, and even those trainings are not all that's going on, yeah. right? And, and, and most students might experience them and forget about it, just like they forget everything else about orientation, right? Mm-hmm. So we tend, I think, to exaggerate um, the influence of some of these things, um, even though, again, they're real. And, uh, you know, I, I write about these things sometimes, including it, in the book. It makes me consider... A protest that happened in a city, right? And you see these images, and you have this thought in your mind: "Oh my gosh, the entire city's burning!" And then you real, then you realize it's confined to a block or two blocks, and you walk six blocks down the street, and people are eating dinner, no problem. Is that's the sense I'm getting? You know, we hear, of course, that protests are happening on a college campus, and they're shouting down professors, and speakers can't even talk. And it's like, yes, that happened, but you know, you go to another building on the other side of campus and everything's calm, normal classes are conducting as they regularly would. Because I I don't want to seem like I'm calling out media or saying college campuses have no issues. Of course, they have issues. Speaking of, what do you see as the role of shame on campuses today? We're kind of pivoting to another idea in your book. The role of shame on campuses today, not only in the classroom and lecture hall, but from students and student activists as well. Yeah, thank you. And if I have just briefly comment on what you said, I, I like that analogy you draw about, you know, the, the city block, mm-hmm. especially at large universities, even medium-sized universities, there's no one thing going on. Yeah. And you really have to think of it in terms of neighborhoods. And that's to some extent true, even of relatively small colleges, they're, they're complicated ecosystems. I do think the small ones are more susceptible at least for periods of time, uh, being almost altogether taken up with some, you know, political quarrel um, mm-hmm. that they're having, and it might be hard to escape. But I think at most colleges and universities, that's probably not true. But to go to your question about shame, so it's a funny thing I think about the way we talk about shame, right? So to shame somebody, that's a bad thing to do, right? I think a lot of times when we're talking about it. You know, if we use the word shaming, it's in the context of you really shouldn't be shaming other people. Mm -hmm. You know, how dare you? (laughs) Who are you to shame other people? But at the same time, our campuses really are sort of inundated with shame of various kinds. And not just our campuses, right? Life is inundated, right? Um, With shame of various kinds. You know, human beings haven't stopped caring about what other people think of them. It's a very powerful motivator. And so, you know, you find it because it's pervasive, um, including on college campuses. Um, There are two kinds of um, shame, I think, on college campuses. I'm sure there are many more um, than two, but but two I would name um, 
that I think about uh, more than others. And um, one is what I'd call um, shame that arises from existing in let's call a culture of cool. And, and here, you know, I'm an outside observer. I'm no expert on cool things. Anybody can tell you, but there's a commentator um, who I think is really good by the name of Mark Edmondson, who writes about this a little bit and writes on education, more generally speaking. And that culture, and I certainly, even at the very intense University of Chicago, where I went to college, you know, mm-hmm. it's sort of recognizable, right? You should be a little bit ironic about everything. <laughs> I mean, again, this was in relatively short supply at Chicago, but you, you see it, I think, yeah. in, in, in lots of places, right? Uh, you shouldn't be, you know, get too intensely into, say, a poem, right? That's mm-hmm. weird. Don't be a freak, you know, and, and yeah. get too into into a piece of literature. Um, so that's one kind of um, shame I'd mention. I think it's there and the funny, it's still there, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the piece that I'm thinking of by Edmondson is it's a pretty old piece, right? I think it must've been written in 1996 or something like that. So it's a while back, but I think that culture still is there. We don't pay a ton of attention to it because we're busy paying a lot of attention to the other shame culture um, on campus, which is, you know, what people call the call-out culture, right? And, and that's the culture that we've been talking about in some ways. It's associated with student activists, although, again, it's fairly pervasive, um, I think, off campus, too. But on campus, it tends to come especially um, from people on the left where, you know, you're, you're surveying social media <laughs> and finding out what people say. And, you know, maybe somebody was spotted at a Trump rally and, you know, you see a picture of that, or maybe somebody said something sarcastic and you misinterpret it as something um, quite serious, or maybe somebody says something that's genuinely shameful. Some people do say shameful stuff and, um, you know, you magnify it, right? That's what calling out somebody is, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe you paste the person's picture on social media or you lodge a complaint. Either the person needs to be shamed, right? It might be a faculty member, it might be a student government official. It might just be sort of a standard fellow student. Mm-hmm. And you say that person ought to be ashamed and maybe investigated and maybe fired. Right. Yeah. Um, so so that I think um, is there, too. Right. That's another kind of um, culture of shame that has some influence on campuses. And again, to some extent, off campus, too. Right. These are phenomena that aren't limited um, to college campuses. And, um, you know, and then there's a third idea that I talk about in the book, um, which I think, unfortunately, is much less pervasive on college campuses. And, um, you know, the two cultures I just described to are basically pure cultures, right? And Mm -hmm. us old fogies, you know, we have a lot of trouble influencing pure culture very much. When you look at those two cultures, neither is really conducive right, to having rigorous discussions of important things, Yeah. right, Uh, whether because you don't want to volunteer something that would make you seem too serious, culture of cool, or because Mm -hmm. you're afraid somebody's going to snap your head off if you uh, use the wrong term um, to describe um, an individual or group. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think neither one... It's not that you should never be ashamed of stuff um, that you say and say that, but neither of these two cultures is conducive um, to discussion. You you need a culture we have to try, right, among ourselves as faculty, as examples, and also among the students to try to develop a sense 
on campus um, that there's something noble <laughs> yeah. about this enterprise um, of submitting oneself um, to reason, of answering to reason's authority, of pursuing arguments and evidence, right, mm -hmm. as far as they'll take you, right, that there's something noble in that. And, um, you know, on the flip side, you're not going to be heavy handed about it, but there's something ignoble about doing the opposite. Yeah. Right? We talked a little bit about people walking away from conversations. And there's this dialogue that we teach um, in the common intellectual experience, so that there are parallels to it elsewhere um, in Plato's work. But this dialogue happens to be the Euthyphro. And at the end of the dialogue, after being subjected right, to all kinds of questions that expose the fact that Euthyphro doesn't really know what he's talking about, mm -hmm. um, he becomes distressed and essentially says, oh, look at the time. And he <laughs> I got somewhere to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and when we discuss it, we absolutely consider the possibility that Socrates is a terrible teacher, that maybe they really were just going around in circles. Maybe Euthyphro was right to leave. But as an institution devoted in some manner or another to reason, mm -hmm. we just want to put our thumb on the scales a bit you yeah. know, for Socrates and say, we want our students to be the ones who don't leave. Right. Um, not just while they're here, but, you know, when, when they when they graduate and we have to hold ourselves to that standard, too, because faculty aren't that great at it either, at least outside of their immediate area of expertise. Right? They may not have that much patience um, with arguing things through um, to the end. So it's an atmosphere that I think you want to try to cultivate across campus. There are limits to the extent to which you can do it. I mean, I try to point out in my book, right, you know. The weekend starts Thursday night. You know, we're not going to uh, turn the dormitory into, you know, a den of pipe smoking, monocle wielding intellectuals. But we, you know, we have to do what we can um, to try to um, you know, set some standards of, um, you know, to use archaic language, what's noble and ignoble that um, suits a community of people who are trying to be reasonable. Well, ultimately, I, I think I want to there's a few points that I want to elaborate on. Ultimately, I think that when it comes to, you know, being in that culture of cool or the worrying about what to say and what not to say versus that framing it as a noble thing to yield to reason and to look at the evidence and to think the arguments out incentives in this case matter. Right. I'm in the culture of cool, I want to be seen as cool, or I don't want to be publicly shamed. So that's my incentive to follow these roles. I mean, what's the, what's the incentive to pursue an argument, to yield to authority, to listen to evidence? Because it seems to be a, a thankless position to have ultimately, right? So, I mean, what, what can inspire a student who is facing something they disagree with and are being told they should join it? I mean, What's the incentive to say no? Is it just knowing that you're taking the noble side, right? You're sticking to your values and you're waiting and withholding judgment until you look at the evidence and the facts before you. I mean, is there how do you how do you convince people, I guess, ultimately, that you shouldn't just play in the hands of the crowds or trying to get into the culture, even if you disagree with it? Well, I, I'm so glad you raised that question for for a couple of reasons, right? One reason is that, that I do sometimes worry 
in placing such an emphasis on Xing, which Luck does also, that I'm suggesting we should spend all the time wagging our fingers at people and saying, you know, you really shouldn't have left yeah. <laughs> and trying to make them feel bad um, about doing that. Um, but I, I do think there are incentives. Um, and I, I'd name at least a few, right? One is there really has to be, you know, some kind of payoff. In other words, I think that one reason we shy away from arguments is because we really think that it is impossible to make any progress in them, hmm. right? It, it's not all that clear to us what the standards are um, for distinguishing among better and worse arguments, right? We think, well, there are probably pretty clear standards in mathematics, but about other stuff that maybe matters more to me, you know, I, I kind of think, well, may, maybe there aren't standards. So um, I, I think it's helpful to try to show that, that you can make progress, <laughs> mm -hmm. right, in these discussions, that you actually can learn things from other people, right? That there's payoff in joining that kind of community in that sense, that um, there's some real pleasure in it. Right. Not just in belonging to such a community. Right. That's a pleasure all by itself. That's a kind of friendship. Right. That's another component of yeah. friendship um, that's not present in every kind of friendship that I think is um, both valuable um, and, and, and quite attractive. Right. Um, so there's there's that kind of thing that that you can make progress. And I, I think most I'm sure you've experienced it. Um, I, I certainly have as a student to be on that. Um, once you do make some progress, there's some real excitement in it, you know, I, mm -hmm. I figured something out, I advanced a step, I may not yeah. know the whole truth yet, but I got somewhere, you know, I yeah. thought this before, and now I think this other thing now, and I, I didn't really think um, that that was quite possible. So I think, you know, along with the you know, uh, shame aspect of it, um, mm -hmm. it's important to show that there are some standards on which we can agree, at least provisionally, um, to make some progress in our discussions. Um, yeah. I'd say last of all, that pride is to some extent already there, right? That is to say, you know, if you talk to, again, not just students, and I don't mean to imply that students are some special class of people, but really most human beings, right? Um, they'll tell you that, you know, that they want to stand up for what they believe in, right? Yeah. And when they decide what to believe in, they don't, they don't want to take it on authority. That's a really pervasive democratic value um, that people have. So it's already there, right? It's not as if you're, you've got nothing to work with and you're facing people determined, right, to follow the will of the majority. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? true. Locke certainly talks about this, um, not just in societies like ours, right? He talks about something in human beings, right, that, that when you point out that their argument is, is wrong, it bothers them, mm -hmm. right? They're troubled. They really want to root themselves um, in something solid, quite often because they get kind of nervous when they're unrooted. They'll settle for something less than solid, right? But there is the desire there that can support the enterprise um, of uh, trying to build a community of people who are attempting um, to be reasonable. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think that does make sense. I mean, there is that many, I guess, many, many fights I've had in my relationships are ultimately about coming to the conclusion that one of us is wrong and you don't really want to necessarily admit it. There is this pain to it, I guess. Um, but as you were describing when you talk about, you know, making some sort of progress or figuring something, it does feel like the whole world opens up before you, you know, it's like, wow, I just, I don't know anything. And that's actually encouraging, you know, it's just. 
what is then the basis for a, a smart defense of colleges and universities? We've toyed with a lot of different ideas, but what should a position defending these institutions ultimately rest on? Yeah, so let me say a couple of things about that. I, I mean, in some ways we've touched on it already, but um, maybe to put it in a context, right, we're, we're talking um, in January, and uh, just over the past couple of days, I've seen lots of academics sort of rush forward, right? especially people who are worried about the fate of the humanities, which are being cut <laughs> at mm-hmm. many colleges and universities, and you know, they're looking at the storming of the Capitol, my guess is people will still remember what that was when they're there. <laughs> and, um, you know, they're saying, well, if these people had a humanistic education by heaven, right, um, this would happen much less. And I actually think there's something to that, right? In other words, I don't think it's altogether wrong. I think that there is some overlap, right, between the virtues that make a person a good member of intellectual community um, and the virtues that make somebody a good democratic citizen, right? I'll name a couple, right? Um, to be a good member of intellectual community, you, you need a, a certain kind of courage, right, to subject your views to scrutiny. Um, you need a certain kind of moderation, mm-hmm. right? For example, to listen to other people, um, to tolerate ambiguity when certainty isn't available to you. That's a kind of moderation, kind of holding yourself back and, um, you know, relatedly not to kind of give in to attractive oversimplifications, right? These are intellectual virtues, Um, but they're also democratic virtues, right? You do want, I think, that kind of um, courage and moderation and people trying to engage in um, democracy as well, right? Whether it's uh, having discussions um, in the public square or thinking about politics, you know, in your own room. Mm-hmm. Um, either way, right, those virtues can can come in handy. So I, I think it probably is true, right, that this kind of education is is pretty good um, for democracy, even though I think there are also some, some tensions, uh, which I discuss in the book a little bit. But I don't think that's quite the right justification for a couple of reasons. The main reason is really that um, colleges and universities are really politically suspect. And so if you if you rush out and say, this is going to really help you with your Trump problem. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's probably not the way to go. And in fact, it, it tends to reinforce biases that already exist on campus. So there's a real arrogance to it, right? Mm-hmm. That is to say that, um, you know, I really know how people ought to think politically speaking. And um, if you just come to my college, <laughs> you know, people yeah. will think more, more that way and there, there will be Trumpists no more. And I don't really think that's what people mean, but it, it's easy to, for people to take it that way. Um, colleges really don't have a lot of capital in that regard, right? A lot of political um, capital, um, especially among Republicans, right? Who you make up a pretty substantial portion of the country. So I tend to rely um, on the justification in a way that we've discussed. I think that universities have the best shot at justifying themselves to others of helping their students avoid foolishness and fanaticism, right? Um, Of helping shape them as judges, not just politically, but otherwise, Mm -hmm. right? Um, In their lives, if they really mostly stick um, to this Lockean model, right? This human being um, who takes pride um, in being reasonable, 
right? And of course, you also have to be some acquainted, right, with some idea of what that looks like. There has to be mm-hmm. an intellectual community into which you're initiated. But um, this Lockean model in which um, um, you take pride in being reasonable and, and, and feel some pangs, yeah. <laughs> um, shame, even think it's disgraceful um, in some ways um, not to yield to reason. I mean, it's so common not to yield to reason that you want to beat yourself about the head too much for a common mm-hmm. failure. So there's some some shame in this, right, according yeah. to um, the locking idea. I, I think that's what colleges and universities ought to do. And I, I think it's also, I, I don't want to be crass, but I think it's sort of marketable. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, I don't know if you know the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, John Hyde and Greg Lukanoff uh, make an argument toward the end of that book, which they say, well, you know, people are getting a little bit tired, <laughs> you know, of um, uh, certain trends in universities. And and if you say, as, for example, the University of Chicago sometimes does, right, we've got this bold statement Mm -hmm. on free speech and the importance of inquiry, and that's what we put in the center. Um, Yeah, people are actually a bit more likely maybe to matriculate in your college, right? I mean, this is a niche, you might say. Yeah. Um, so, So I think that it does represent what colleges ought to be doing. In other words, I think this is central. Um, to university life, as I conceive it anyway, right? But at the same time, um, I, I do think it just might sell. <laughs> Never know. Yeah. Now, now I, I can tell you that I'm also the person who, when um, Amazon went beyond books, I said that that'll never work. Their specialty really is books. And so yeah. you shouldn't take advice from me on what's going to sell. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe John Hyde and Greg Lukunoff are better on that subject than I am. You have to check their stock portfolio. <laughs> Well, it was interesting when you were talking about the general idea that you need to avoid foolishness and broad simplifications and whatnot, because it reminds me of a an essay Neil Postman wrote called Educationist as Painkiller, in which he talks about perhaps we need to stop saying that we're going to cultivate intelligence or expand knowledge. He's like, I don't think an, an educator has the slightest idea of what knowledge or the effect teaching has on the cultivation of intelligence. He simply states that we should reduce stupidity. Now, he defines stupidity as what you say, foolishness, the reduction of errors, he said, if you want to be a little less crass. Generally, you got to look at having a bullshit detector. I mean, that's the that should be the market that a school is in, right? The reduction of error, because we, we know what a logical fallacy is. We can identify quite a few of them. Let's reduce these in our students' thinking. We'll have clearer thought. I don't necessarily think what you just said in in, in Postman's view are opposed at all. Yeah, thank you. Well, that's interesting. You know, I don't know that essay, so I, I wrote down the title. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, maybe I'll take a look and, and see what I think. But just a couple of thoughts I have, um, you know, um, based on what you said about it. You know, I, I'd use a, an analogy, right? There is a lot of emphasis right now um, in the field of psychology um, and also economics on a whole slew of errors yeah. um, that people make in their thinking, right? These sort of heuristic, right? These kind of shortcut biases that enter into our thinking. You know, one book that is about this is... Um, is um, Daniel Kahneman's most recent book. Unfortunately, the title is slipping my mind, just like the name of Ben Shapiro's um, magazine, but it, maybe it'll come to me. 
Um, but in any case, Daniel Kahneman really focuses on these errors. And a lot of the point of the book is to you know, avoid those biases. He says we're, we're not very good at avoiding them ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we could kind of have people talking about them um, on a regular basis, where he talks about water cooler conversation. Ah, thinking fast and slow. Thank you. There we are. Um, yeah, we, we taught that book for a little while um, in the mm-hmm. common intellectual experience. So we don't teach it there anymore. But he talks about these water cooler conversations where if you're kind of in a community where people are talking about the mistakes people make all the time, maybe, maybe they'll rub off on you, even though you're not very good at dealing with those mistakes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think that, that that's pretty good, right? It's not bad, but uh, and that's very good. And I, I, I like that book very much, actually. But the um, you know, I'm reminded a little bit of um, another development in the field of, of psychology um, called positive psychology. Um, I, I don't know if you've, you, you've, you've heard of that, but... Um, heard, but not it, familiar. Yeah, so the insight of, um, of um, positive psychology is that, um, you know, we, we kind of know a lot about uh, what makes people dysfunctional, right? Psychology is the study of disease, right? And positive psychology asks, well, what makes them, them happy, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. so a lot of positive psychology is, is sort of the science of happiness, which is so popular. Um, right now, and you know, it's quite controversial, but you know, there it is, right? And I think the same is sort of true in judgment, right? That we, we know a lot about the errors people make in judgment, but um, we ought to focus also on what constitutes um, good judgment yeah. um, as well, right? Uh, that would be helpful. So, um, yes, it's good to have a bullshit detector. And in some ways, I think that, um, that, that scholars, um, when they say this is how we avoid people storming the Capitol, right? If people had better bullshit detectors, right, they wouldn't believe some of the things that they've been told um, about the elections, for example. And, and, you know, that may be so, and that may be useful, but um, it's not sufficient, I think, to be a good judge to know various ways in which you can go wrong. Um, And, uh, you know, I think about this uh, now Socratic, not Lockean idea that the unexamined life is not worth living for a human being. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me more, more complete um, and inspiring than have a good bullshit detector. Both, both yeah. are important, but I think one is a little bit more complete um, than the other, even though it's also difficult to figure out exactly how to pursue it. That is, I, I guess I would agree with Postman, that's a little bit easier to tell when you've avoided a fallacy yeah. Um, then to determine um, when somebody is a good judge um, of things. I think I think that's that's harder. I, I definitely agree. And, and maybe the happy medium is um, William James and his talks to teachers. He discusses how he views education as the organization of acquired habits and um, of conduct and tendencies to behavior in that you want to you know, build in someone the habits of someone who is not making these mistakes all the time and tendencies to behavior of someone who carefully examines the evidence and reasons. And so it, it's kind of this in-between between the the postman and the and the Socratic idea of education. Yeah. And habit is really important um, mm-hmm. to John Locke, too, right? Cultivating um, good intellectual habits. When you look at his works in education, he really starts before... Um, a child could really know what exactly it is um, he's getting into. Um, So, you know, I I agree that um, in some ways, when I think about um, the idea of shame, which we've discussed, and I think about habit, 
the reason I think those are necessary is that, um, you know, we're not terribly rational beings. We're always threatening to go wrong. And, and even things we think are rational, right, um, they often somehow, you know, transmogrify into something else, yeah. right? You know, sort of a mere contrarianism um, or a snobbery about one kind of knowledge, right? I like the classics, but don't like modern things. I like modern things, yeah. but don't like classic things. Even people who think they're, they're very clever and are very well educated are, are in constant danger of going wrong. And so it, it's helpful to have these, these external supports, both from a community and a community constituted at least in part, yeah. right, um, by, by certain kinds of standards, which have the support of this idea um, of nobility mm -hmm. um, and ignobility, honor and dishonor. So I recently was reading um, the autobiography of Malcolm X, and he's discussing about when he was in prison and learning how to read. And it seems as though shame played a crucial role in his learning how to read because he said he was ashamed of his writing. He was ashamed that he couldn't put thoughts in the way that he wanted it to go. And it got me thinking about how shame does play a crucial role in education. But is it something else when the shame is external and coercive? Is it more productive when that shame is within, right? You don't want, oh, I don't want to say that. I'm going to sound stupid or something like that, right? When you question yourself, that internal dialogue. And I think that is, you know, that examining yourself in your own thoughts and, you know, wondering, oh, oh if I say this, am I going to be judged for this? Or it's, it's that it's that shame that, oh, I can't believe I thought that. It's such a yeah. dumb thought to have had. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think I think that's right. And let me say a couple of things about it, because here it gets a little bit eerie when you start to think about it that way. But I think that and I'll explain why <laughs> um, or maybe eerie is the wrong word, but unnerving if you think of it that way. Um, and that is that, you know, uh, of course. Right. I, I mean, we don't have, um, you know, when we're babies, we don't have a strong sense of shame as far yeah. as I can tell. Right. Uh, maybe a baby psychologist will prove me wrong, but we do tend to internalize standards, mm -hmm. right? At first, it's somebody telling us something, and at some point, um, we internalize it. I mean, sometimes that's bad, right? That is mm -hmm. to say that, um, you know, you might imagine some kind of mad scientist developing these standards, and then they somehow, you know, inject into, mm -hmm. right, human beings, then who become these, these, these quasi-automatons who um, have these standards, and they don't really know where they came from exactly, and... Um, yeah, it's troubling. And in fact, it, it's a criticism that some people make of Locke that um, he plays such an emphasis on esteem and disgrace. Um, and his critics sometimes argue that this, this, he makes it look like freedom, but really it's just another mode of dominance and subjection, because how do you get more dominant than, than sort of imposing standards on people that then internalize? And I don't quite remember yeah. um, where they got them from. And I, I do think that that's, you know, it, it sounds like a good problem. It is a genuine problem. In other words, I think you have to worry about that. But, you know, th th there really is a difference, right, between internalizing a standard that says, I, I ought to question the things that I've heard, mm -hmm. right, which may lead in the end to the questioning of your standard as it comes into contact with reality. So yeah. in a way, a standard of questioning does end up questioning and examining itself, mm -hmm. right? That's something different than internalizing the view that, what the tyrant says is always right, right? They're both standards that at first come from the outside. They're both standards that can be internalized. Mm -hmm. um, 
but one I think is more open to being fought through yeah. um, than the other, and so so less dangerous, right? We have to live with the fact um, that we are going to receive um, standards externally that we then internalize sometimes before we're conscious of what that's going to mean, what the internalization is going to mean. Um, and so what we need are standards that um, that are consistent um, with being reasonable, um, with following the arguments and evidence where they lead, and that are capable of, um, in a way, you know, folding back on themselves. Right again, I, I keep uh, boosting. I don't know if you mentioned I teach at a sinus college, right, um, in yeah. Pennsylvania. And I, I, I hate to keep boosting my own program, but, you know, I, I think our program is Socratic in a lot of ways, right? At its centers, these big questions, yeah. right? I won't repeat them. And somehow we're supposed to be trying to think this through for ourselves via dialogue um, with texts and with peers. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some sense, we have what you might call Socratic prejudice. The whole program is built around that. Yeah. Right. But we do read lots of texts that question that the Socratic way is the best way, mm-hmm. right? And some students, I think, take those texts quite seriously because they don't necessarily get all that excited, right, about Socrates. So, th- so there's, there, there's, there is that possibility of um, both internalizing a standard and still being capable of questioning it. I can't remember whether I used this example of, uh, in the book, but, right, just because I've... Um, acquired and internalized the standard of, you know, getting up at 7 a.m. and going to sleep to midnight, that doesn't mean that um, that, 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 that um, a mindless automaton, right? Yeah. I, I probably can come around to questioning that standard, even if it's internal. And in many ways, um, what we're after, mm-hmm. right, in education is especially the possibly of internal question, because that's the hardest thing. Right. We're very bad. Right. That's what Kahneman says. But it's also what John Locke says about turning right this touchstone we've, we've got mm-hmm. right on ourselves. We're great at noticing problems in other people's arguments. Yeah. Right. But not so good at, um, at noticing problems in our own. Um, and I think that with most internalized standards, right, um, it may be hard to get outside of them, but with mm-hmm. an internalized standard of the sort that um, Locke is proposing, right, that this idea of being reasonable and all that it entails, that's much less dangerous to, to, to our freedom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it could be dangerous in some ways, right? We might become arrogant. We might become close to other alternatives. We might scorn, right, people, for example, who think, well, no, I think reason really has its limits. I'm a person of faith, right? There are all kinds of dangers, I think, mm-hmm. in, in any kind of enterprise like this, um, but that this is the best we've got. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, so I, I want to backpedal a little bit, and I know um, I want to be respectful of your time. I told you it's take about an hour, and we're kind of going over. Um, you mentioned the seminar and talking about teaching platonic dialogues and how no one's going to report on that. And it, what you were just talking about, was that the one that's taught by multiple different faculty members from multiple different departments? It is, yeah. That um, I actually had someone on recently, uh, Dr. Melinda Zook from Purdue, and they have this cornerstone integrated liberal arts, which is they focus on the transformative texts and uh, essentially a Socratic seminar in which you you reading the text and interacting with your peers and having those kinds of discussions. So uh, 
someone may report on it. I did a whole podcast episode about it, so you can you can hold out hope yet. Um, well, I, I actually I actually heard that that episode. I I, I listened, um, and I, I thought it was very good. Uh, but looking at your lineup lately, you may have to start calling yourself Dirty Education. Uh, yes, so um, Dirty that's, I'm, I'm glad you bring this up. Uh, the name is the name will be changing. Yeah, um, I'm getting turning a lot of heads when I say you want to come on the show, Dirty History, and someone's like, "What the hell are you talking about? You haven't had." You haven't done any history in the last couple of months. Yeah, no. Uh, we'll be changing the name soon. I'm kind of holding on to it still. So before we go, uh, does a defense of education that rests on a lot of the concepts we discuss necessarily does it necessitate a reworking of the values and culture of a campus? Or are we already on our way, so to speak? Well, uh, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not 100% sure how best to answer, but let, let me take a stab at it. Okay. Right? I, I want to go back to an earlier part of the conversation, right, in, in which you said there, there, there's widespread agreement that universities are just pretending to reason and really they're doing something else. And I said, well, I don't really think that's true, right? That is to say that I, I think both if you ask sort of external people who aren't in universities and if you ask people inside universities, they'll recognize that as in ideal, mm -hmm. right, that universities um, are involved in, maybe especially, funnily enough, the scientists, right? And, and in some ways, I would scientists would, would take a, a stronger role, um, as they do to some extent here at our sinus, right, a stronger mm -hmm. role um, in trying to make sense of what colleges and universities do, rather than leaving it to politicized humanists, right, to say mm -hmm. um, what we're about. So I think that idea is present at universities. You don't have to sort of create an entirely new university um, to articulate this kind of idea um, or even, you know, but I think what I've argued in the book is, you know, a certain development of this kind of idea that may be different from others. But I, I don't think that, that my idea requires a radical re-envisioning yeah. um, of what universities are. Um, it does require a, a recentering, right? I mean, colleges and universities are always producing sort of values lists nowadays, right? Mm -hmm. And they're usually, right, right, these sort of 10-point things, and one of them is inquiry, you know, mm -hmm. one or two. And, 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 and what, we, what one needs to do is recognize its centrality, right, and, and put it at the center of everything we do, right, uh, whether we're trying to determine the best policy for dealing um, for example, with um, with uh, racism on campus, or we're trying to um, figure out um, what the best curriculum is, right? We ought to be looking to relate to each other as a community that's striving to be reasonable. We want students, professors, administrators to think of this as the approach we're going to take as much as possible you know, to every kind of problem we encounter, mm -hmm. right? And um, you know, I, I think that, again, that's there, um, but there are other things people talk about, too. And, you know, sort of when you listen to presidential statements nowadays, you know, quite often it's a response to some emergency, internal or external, that's mm -hmm. political in character. And what they're doing is, you know, making some fairly conventional stand, bland statement that, you know, something is wrong and another thing is right. Um, in other words, um, you know, taking a political or moral stance. Yeah, and sometimes college presidents have to do that kind of thing. We're, we're, we're not just communities of inquiry, right? In other yeah. words, we're not departing from the idea of being a community of inquiry, for example, if, if our college president leads um, a ceremony, which we're mourning somebody inside the community, right? Mm -hmm. Communities do 
all kinds of things, right? Uh, but the critical thing about a university is is that inquiry and that it tends to be reasonable. And so what, what needs to be done is, is to just make that central. If it's not central, we're going to go wrong trying to do every other kind of thing. Uh, we want our students to be, you know, civically engaged. Well, how are they going to do that, right? If they're not also aspiring to be reasonable, how are they going to do any good for themselves um, or others, mm -hmm. right? We want them to get great jobs. Well, how are they going to be sort of trustworthy um, professionals, whether they're, you know, they go into teaching or um, they go into um, business or the law? Um, how does that not go wrong, right? Yeah. If they're not looking in some way to um, hone their understandings, mm -hmm. right? By striving to be reasonable. So, yeah. you know, we can have more than one banner, right? We can say, yeah, we're doing civic engagement. We'd like our students, right? Yeah. In some way or another to be citizens for the most part. I mean, if some just do pure math, that's okay. But, you know, it, yeah. it's all right to have a civic engagement program. But, um. But that, that aspiration to be reasonable should be at the center of that, too. It should be at the center of diversity inclusion efforts. It's mm -hmm. fine to have those efforts on campus, right? But it may be important to have those efforts on campus. But still, this idea of being reasonable has to be at the center of that kind of enterprise um, as well, right? There's no point in instituting a training, for example, if you hadn't thought about what its goals are and whether it's going to work or not. Yeah. Right? And yet I think quite often we do just because we've got a situation, we've got a fire and want to put it out in some way or another. And that, that's not the way um, reflective communities are supposed to operate. Mm -hmm. So a, a clear expectation and a, a recentering of focus on inquiry and reason with the knowledge that, yes, other things are going to happen. We're going to be civically engaged and we're going to do all of these things. But at the end of the day, the, the crucial point is the, the inquiry and reason that will inform the rest. Right. And, and okay. it's not. And as I said, I don't think it's, it's a radically new new concept yeah. that people at university wouldn't 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 recognize. Um, but I think it's not often articulated even internally. So I think it's useful mm -hmm. um, to try to uh, make a clear articulation of it. I think it's useful to talk about all of the pitfalls involved. Right. I mean, every university says we're doing critical thinking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, first of all, right, uh, what is that? Is it a set of skills, right? I'm trying to argue in favor of the idea that we really have to think in terms of a certain kind of human being mm -hmm. um, with certain goals, right, and certain yeah. ideas um, about what is um, uh, honorable and what's shameful. So th that's mm -hmm. one thing. And then two, how difficult is it, Yeah. right, um, to manage that? What, what, what are um, the pitfalls that we face and... Um, what do we need to do um, in order to uh, uh, strengthen um, our reason in some ways, you know, against all odds yeah. <laughs> to, uh, to, to go with the song. So I think that, um, yeah, in a way, it's almost as if colleges have, you know, that they mouth that thing, critical thinking, but it's as if, well, it's, it's easy to do, you know, we'll, we'll teach a class on logic um, um, or it will, um, you know, uh, Students will absorb it, you know, through osmosis and all of their mm -hmm. classes, everybody's doing it. And yeah. there's not a lot of thought about um, what that might mean, what it might entail. Not a lot of about... thought unless you've come on this podcast. We had quite a long episode on critical thinking and 
osmosis, but we're I'm definitely one of the you have to infuse it into the standing curriculum and you're working on the knowledge, skills, and dispositions that a student must develop to be a critical thinker. I'm glad you talked about I'm always for talking about critical thinking. Um <laughs> well I really appreciate you coming on. Well I, I really enjoyed doing it. This is this is the uh the first um, podcast I'm on to uh, to talk about my book, and um, if this is any indication, it's going to be a, a pleasure. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's your first one, you said. Yeah. Couldn't even tell, like a pro. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again. Thank you.